This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In the new DC superhero film Blue Beetle, a young Mexican-American man stumbles across a creepy, bug-like alien artifact that bonds to him and gives him superpowers. This sets off a series of events that bring his beloved family into conflict with an evil megacorporation that wants to use the artifact for sinister purposes. It may seem like just another story about a reluctant hero, but in execution, centering the film on a Latino family changes the familiar formula in ways big and small. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Blue Beetle on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is culture critic and reporter Serena Toros. Hey, Serena. Hey, Glenn. Hey, and also with us is film critic and senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center, Monica Castillo. Welcome back, Monica. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. And rounding out the panel is Ronald Young Jr. He is the host of the film and television review podcast, Leaving the Theater, and of the recently launched podcast, Wait For It, W-E-I-G-H-T. Hey, Ronald, congratulations. Thank you so much. Couldn't wait, W-A-I-T, to be here. <laughs> there you go. Okay, let's get to it. In Blue Beetle, Sholo Maradueña plays young Jaime, who returns from college to the fictional town of Palmera City, where his beloved family informs him they've fallen on hard times. Determined to get a job that will save his home, Jaime goes to Cord Industries, the local tech firm, and winds up in possession of the Scarab, an alien bioweapon that binds to his spine and outfits him with a sentient suit of armor that can fly and produce just about any weapon he can think of. But Jaime's not a killer, nor does he particularly want to be a superhero, his efforts to rid himself of the scarab bring his family to the attention of the leader of Cord Industries, Victoria Cord, played with scheming, wide-eyed, silent movie gusto by Susan Sarandon. She wants the scarab back to create an army of military mech suits and will stop at nothing, including attempting to murder Jaime and his family to get it. 
The film also stars George Lopez as Jaime's uncle Rudy, Belisa Escobedo as his sister Milagro, Bruna Marquezini as Jaime's ally Jenny Cord, and Raul Max Trujillo as the sinister Carapax, who has a mech suit of his own, because of course he does. <laughs> the film was written by Gareth Dunet Alcocer and directed by Angel Manuel Soto. Blue Beetle is in theaters now. Monica, let me start with you. What'd you think? Oh my goodness. I had so much fun. I had very low expectations going in, uh-huh. mostly because I had no idea what a blue beetle was. Sure. Um, <laughs> as many people did probably going into yep. the movie. And the way that they build the character, his family, I really got emotionally invested into it. There were all these like cultural references and jokes. I miss jokes in superhero movies. Uh-huh. So this was like such a fun return to how you know, just enjoyable these movies could be. That's absolutely true. You're not alone in having low expectations. I knew exactly who this Blue Beetle was, and I had low expectations. (laughs) This movie was originally slated to go directly to streaming, but then DC changed that strategy. There were these weird articles coming out about how bad its box office was going to be, which didn't turn out to be true. It did perfectly fine. And we are also told that this is meant to establish the beachhead of whatever the new James Gunn-led DCU was going to look like. A lot was riding on this film. Ronald, what would you think? You know, it was good. It was a good DC movie. It was a generally okay superhero movie. I think that as this conversation expands and continues, you will find that I probably liked all the same things that y'all liked. I liked the family stuff. I liked the comedy stuff. I could have watched just the whole movie of this family just being a family in a movie. That was Mm -hmm. great. Some great emotional beats. You know, there's something that happens on the air quotes. I I don't even know if I could say this without spoiling, but there's something that happens in a place (laughs) with with the thing. (laughs) There's something that happens in a pretty cool environment that I really enjoyed, and it was a very emotional Uh scene and I really enjoyed that but I felt like this movie kind of like interrupted and undercut itself by just having some very bad superhero beats and just stuff that just felt set up to have more heroic beats and all of that felt like normal stuff that you see in streaming films we have to do this Mm -hmm. because it's a superhero movie but it's a streaming film we only have three dollars so how are we going to actually make that happen (laughs) (laughs) so it felt like a little unusual to see that like on the big screen but I don't think any of that takes away from it being like a, a pretty good movie yeah pretty good movie Serena what'd you think Well, I mean, $3 in a dream, you can do a lot with that. (laughs) That's certainly true. (laughs) I actually was pretty familiar with Blue Beetle. I was a big fan of the animated Young Justice series, which ran Mm. in the 2010s. And Blue Beetle is one of the main characters of the second season, which has these like alien sci-fi shenanigans. I love alien sci-fi shenanigans. I'm always upset that like only white people get to have alien sci-fi shenanigans. And so it was so exciting. And, you know, to Ronald's point, this superhero origin story looks pretty similar to a lot of other ones that we're really familiar with. This is like, you know, Spider-Man meets Iron Man, even though those are Marvel properties and this is a DC film. I mean, it it sucks that, like, if you think about Spider-Man was one of the first films that somebody my age in their late 20s saw as a superhero film in the theaters in the early 2000s. Iron Man in 2008 is considered, you know, the kickoff to the MCU. And so here we are, you know, 20 years after that Spider-Man movie, 15 years after that Iron Man movie, and we're getting our first live-action on-screen Latino character. And so it just sucks that, like, this specific character has a story that is so similar to these other cornerstone properties that if you're coming in blind, you're like, yeah, well, this feels kind of familiar. And I think... 
you know, to Monica's point, the beating heart of this film really is the family. The family is super. And I think that's what makes it really great, that it has an emotional core that I think a lot of these other films have kind of forgotten along the way. Mm-hmm. Or they pay lip service to it. And you can mm-hmm. tell when they're yes. paying lip service to yes. it. I kind of loved this movie. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I didn't expect to. It helped a great deal that I was sitting next to a Cuban who uh, oh. was laughing his fool head off at things like the Vicks VapoRub joke. Yes. Oh, yeah. And oh, the God. El Chapo in Colorado joke. I mean, it was like sitting next to Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. It was, <laughs> it was frankly unsettling. <laughs> And there's a moment in the film where the grandmother kind of nudges Jaime to get behind her. That Mm -hmm. choked him up. And that led to a rant in the car on the way home about how right this movie gets the women in his family. Mm -hmm. So what is happening there is representation. You see a hero on the screen that looks like you. You see a family on the screen that looks like yours. That is hugely important. We'll talk about it. But I I just want to say that when the jokes in this film – they seemed rooted in a, a kind of cultural specificity that kind of bubbles up from the history of these characters, the world of these characters, and that what's makes them universal. It's when they're kind of lazily sprinkled over top or added in post that those kind of things feel cliched and cynical because I know for a fact there must be some version of this film out there that was lazier and easier and broader and Soto actually talked to a friend of the show, Carlos Aguilar, in Inverse Magazine about how, you know, he often sees movies where there's a grandmother, she says mija twice, and they eat tacos. Yes. And then they call it a day. <laughs> and that said, at the opening minutes of this film, there's a grandmother, she says mija twice, and they eat tacos. But still, <laughs> it goes beyond that. And to your point, Serena, I, middle-aged white guy here, mm-hmm. uh, I have seen heroes on screen that look like me so often. And as we've all talked about, they're all kind of couch in this corporate, you know, approved, focus grouped narrative formula that does feel like an algorithm these days. And, you know, when people talk about superhero fatigue, that's what they're talking about. It's the same old stories tweaked or or slightly retooled because, not because these stories need to be told or yearn to be told, but because we got to keep the rights alive, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because the shareholders need a good quarter. And what I found striking about this film is as soon as you center a film that has a lot of very formulaic superhero elements. It's got the training montage. It's got the reluctant hero. It's got the villain who looks a lot like the hero. All that (laughs) stuff. As soon as you center it on a people and on a culture that historically hasn't been centered, what do you get? You get new stories, new voices. I mean, I think Soto as a director gets to play more than I expected a director of a blockbuster superhero to play. I think he put his own mark on things. And I think... This approach is the solution to superhero fatigue. It's rooted in the real. It's real lived experience. I think if this is a test case, completely worked for me. But Glenn, it, it sounds like you're talking about Black Panther. Like, you know, like as <laughs> yeah. you were talking, I was like, Black Panther, Black Panther, Black Panther, Black Panther. I, I did compare Blue Beetle a little bit to Black Panther because it did create a whole new world. Yeah. It introduced us to a group of characters, not just one token character, but a whole family of people that we could root for and really get invested in. It's been a minute since we've seen like a full ensemble come forward like that. And that's what I think, like, when you're looking at these movies, for me, especially walking in, I'm not comparing Blue Beetle to Iron Man. I see the similarities and in Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But I am comparing it to Black Panther to say, like, I'm looking at the writers. I'm looking at the directors. Mm-hmm. I'm saying who's in it. Like, what are the faces we're going to see? What are the jokes we're going to get? Because I feel like Black Panther set the bar to say, like, this is what that looks like. Then you get something like Shang-Chi that says, and this is also what that looks like, where, like, you're starting to get more and more of, like, like people of color jumping in and saying like, we also like superheroes and we also want to tell a story. And I enjoy that. I will say all the things that we liked, I 100% agree with like family, all of that.
of that, any of cultural jokes, any of that stuff that came in there. But it was stuff where it felt like a studio head came in and said, but this is a superhero movie and we have to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking specifically to one scene where the Blue Beetle He's about to get on the ship, and instead of getting on the ship, he says, hold on, I need to do something. And he does nothing, but by doing nothing in that moment, he ends up in a scene where he has to run to the ship and then jump on at the last minute. And I was like, wait, what? Like, you could have that could have been done completely differently. So I feel like those yeah. were the kind of moments where I'm just like, but I want to make sure that when we're building these movies, we're thinking about those moments, you know? You know, I am comparing it so hard to Iron Man, I think. Aside from the super suit aspect, the AI foreign entity controlling the suit aspect, I'm thinking about it in terms of philosophy. Because Iron Man is this movie that is about the military-industrial complex and American imperialism and the idea of the lone male genius, and in particular, the male tech genius and CEO, and that capitalism is good, innovation is good, Right until it bites me, male tech genius, in the ass personally. (laughs) And then even then, it's like Tony Stark is like, if I could just make the right tech and Mm. keep trying, I, one man, could fix everything. Which is just such insane, massive hubris. And this film, Blue Beetle, is using a lot of these same ideas about, you know, the military-industrial complex and American imperialism. But because of who's behind the camera and who's writing it, it ends up taking a different conclusion entirely. This film is not about centering a guy who is realizes 20 years down the line that he's maybe made a mistake, but then he's still like buddy-buddy with this thing that he's created because he's at the top. He has the power. This is about the opposite. It's about the people who don't have the power. It's about centering the evils wrought on people on the other side of the equation. And I think it does a really good job of you know, creating a hero and a villain who suffer under these same circumstances. Yes, and good point. And I think it's so cool to have a movie that is skeptical from the get-go that police, that big corporations, mm. that tech companies are the good guys interested in helping them out. There's a line in here, George Lopez calls somebody or something fascist, and I was like, is that the first time we've heard fascist in a movie, even though the Captain America ones yeah. Yeah. are about Nazis? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is so refreshing. Let's talk about that, because there is something going on in this film, something sociopolitical. For one thing, we say it centers the dude. It kind of doesn't. I mean, Jaime isn't really the focus. No. The mm-hmm. women in his life spend yeah. just as much time on screen mm-hmm. as he does. That's new. Uh, there's references to the School of the Americas, which was an actual place where the U.S. military trained Latin Americans to do the U.S.'s bidding in their own countries. Yeah. There's a shot here that deliberately evokes immigration raids. Mm-hmm. Very Killmonger-esque, I might say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Bringing it back. Bringing it back to the Black Panther. No, I totally agree. Even the conversations about gentrification were a uh-huh. little bit you know, more in depth than I thought would ever be given in a superhero movie. Aren't we chasing after like some sort of infinity stones usually or wasting time (laughs) about these things? But no, they actually made time and space to acknowledge not just the immediacy and these characters, but also the world in which they live in. Absolutely. And thinking back to Black Adam, which is not a sentence that comes up often, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they they paid a little lip service to this notion of the military industrial complex as oppressors and the people of Kandak being objectified. But that was kind of dealt with very quickly. The other thing that Black Adam did that this film thankfully does is it brings in at the end one of the top three DC heroes just to kind of nod and say, 
welcome. I love the fact that we don't see Superman, we don't see Batman, we don't see Wonder Woman, which was the DC strategy for years. Got that Gotham Law sweatshirt. I loved it. We do see a Gotham Law sweatshirt, and I'm here for that. That's the kind of thing I want. I want, if you want to bring us into this world, do it. But having Superman show up at the end of the film is just does nothing but diminish the action of the film you've just watched. Correct. He could have come and just nodded his head, and Mm -hmm. all the problems of the movie would be solved. So, yeah, I dug that about this. The movie is just kind of its own thing. I did see somebody who looked like maybe they could have been Static Shock, you know? Yeah, sure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Sure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So maybe some Easter eggs in there still. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some Easter eggs. There's definitely some stuff that will come back later. I I was the only person in the theater who recognized all the Ted Cord Beatles Mm -hmm. stuff because Ted Cord was the Blue Beetle I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they went to a certain place and there was some Ted Cord stuff, I was like, I bet I know what other Ted Cord Beatles stuff is going to. Oh, there it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then it showed up. I will say the family was playing a role that we normally see played by one person. They are the sidekick, all of them, which mm-hmm. I just thought was just a brilliant use of that trope. Yeah, in that's movies. interesting. But I really think it's very interesting. And it's of told when you get like marginalized communities to make their own movies that mm-hmm. the whole family would be involved while this person is coming of age, essentially. And all of this is happening. And his father's there, his mother's there, his sister's there the whole time. Yeah, I hate the secret identity trope where you're just like, yes. Just, just tell your mom. Just tell your mom can Who help. You know? yes. Moms know everything. Your mom knows. Your mom absolutely yeah. knows. Yes. She washes your clothes. She knows. The whole Miles Morales <laughs> thing of like he's keeping it silent from his parents. I'm like, God bless. I don't know that that would actually fly. No. <laughs> I also wanted to shout out the soundtrack because yeah. in, in addition to the like in-movie cultural references and having the telenovela on the TV <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and, and having the jokes and things like that. But there's actually, you know, it actually extends to the soundtrack itself from like 80s Mexican pop music to, you know, more recent reggaeton stuff. I mean, it's probably one of the most fun I've had with like a superhero movie soundtrack. My one quibble is that I'm a big fan of Becky G. She Mm -hmm. actually is voicing Kajida, the the scarab in this movie. If you're a fan of Becky G, you won't recognize her voice because it is like digitized. And I was like, where is the the Becky G song in the closing credits. I was like, I was really hoping for that. But, you know, maybe maybe in the sequel she'll bust out in song. I'm rooting for a sequel, full on. Yeah, I feel like I feel more hopeful about Blue Beetle than I do about the DCEU. The Blue Beetleverse, I'm here for it. I'll watch a hundred more of these movies. Yeah, I think if we build a world around Jaime as a character, I want it to go in the sort of Young Justice direction, yeah. like the Teen Titans direction. I feel like I, I'm checked out on Batman and Superman at this point. I've but had enough. I think... If you center the stories of these characters and let them be 20-somethings and, you know, let them have fun and let them mess up and let the stakes be kind of lower, not like world-ending, universe-ending stakes, I think that is a recipe for success. I think so, too. Well, we want to know what you think about Blue Beetle. <laughs> Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Serena Toros, Monica Castillo, Ronald Young Jr., thank you all for being here. Great to be here. Thank you, Glenn. So glad to be back. Great to have you. We want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you haven't signed up yet, want to show your support and listen to this show without a single sponsor break, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, come in, provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. 
From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.